Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Alrighty then. We were got through chapter 3 verses 13 and 14 which are really key and I think worthy to go back over and kind of use as a segue before we get into 15 because I mean Paul has explained and explained and you know I said before I think chapters 1 and 2 I mean Paul sat me down and talked to me that way I, I would have understood it yeah he wants to go on for two and a half times more longer. <laughs> he's just not done. And he actually is becoming more clear in what he's saying. Because, again, you have to consider the times. I mean, these are people that Paul had taught, and now others have been teaching. So they have two opposing concepts in their mind. And what Paul has to do is to bring them back to the truth. And so, yes, part of that is pointing out what is wrong about the opposing side. Does that make sense? I mean, you, you can't ignore what the oppositional thoughts are. And that's what Paul is doing now. He's bringing it to them, saying, your experience is you, you, you believed in Jesus, you saw the power of the Holy Spirit manifest, you saw miracles, you saw all these things, but then you allowed this other teaching to come in. So he's trying to bring them back to the way they began. To show them the value of it. So what he's been doing now in, in, in chapter 3 is, rather than talk about Moses and the law, and how wrong that is, which he's done in the first two chapters, he now brings up Abraham. Who technically, in the Jewish hierarchy, Abraham would be even higher than, than Moses. And that's good that the Jews are aware of that, because that's exactly what Paul does here in chap, chapter 3. He's promoting... The, the basis of the relationship of God and Abraham as more important than God and Moses, giving the law. So, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Alright, so he said it before, he's saying it again. If you follow the law, you're under a curse. But now he's using it as expanded saying that Jesus himself took on the curse for us. Now, he's going to get into that here coming up. We'll probably get to it today here. Uh, he's going to be talking about if you're under the law, you're under the curse. The curse is with the law, you now know you're sinning. Rats. Ignorance is bliss, is it not? But now you know. And there is no excuse. So this is what's unfolding in, in these verses. He's, he's trying to make that clear. So since you are claiming to be under the law, which by definition means you're also under a curse, Jesus dying on the cross took away the curse from you, comma, and the law. <laughs> you see? Yeah. By the simple act of Jesus' crucifixion means that... that the, all that is gone. 
The, the, the curse of the, uh, of the law and the curse that the law brought with sin, all that is gone. Therefore, the focus now is, since we don't want to focus on the negative, the focus is we are free in the Spirit. The freedom in the Spirit. He's already mentioned that term. He's going to be coming back to it. So anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. But now the great part is, Jesus being the model for us, he takes on that entire curse for us. The curse of all humanity has now been destroyed because Jesus was hung on a tree. He redeemed us. Remember two weeks ago we, we talked about the word redemption, redeeming. It's a, it's a financial term. You owe somebody something. We owed God the penalty of our sin. And that was a debt we could never repay. Uh, Harken back to the, uh, uh, the parable of the, uh, uh, the two servants. The one servant owed his master like a bazillion dollars in modern money. And, I mean, the owner, the master knew he couldn't pay it back. He forgave the entire, the entire debt. It's a, it's a financial term, is what? A talent is, is a year's wage. It's a financial term. He owed him 10,000 talents. I think, which by the way, 10,000 was the highest number they had. What possible reason would they have for a million, right? 100,000, right, in that day. There was no, no need for that. So 10,000 was the highest number, and a talent was the highest denomination of money. So you have the highest number times the highest number, an infinite number was owed, debt forgiven. That servant leaves, immediately runs into another servant who owed him a couple bucks. Grabs him by the throat and says, pay me back immediately or I'm throwing you in debtor's prison. And when word of that got back to the master, he calls the first servant in who had, had his debt forgiven. And said, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, I mean, I showed you all this mercy and all this forgiveness. Why could you not have shown that to others? So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to release... The guy you just had thrown in debtor's prison, and I'm going to throw you in prison now until you can repay your debt. Meaning you will never repay your debt. How could you repay a debt when you're, you're in prison? You have no source of income. Besides that, it's an infinite debt. Again, a doubling of the, the magnitude of what, what we're experiencing here. And that's what Paul's talking about here. That curse upon us was infinite. There's no way, I mean, if we had decided, you know, at 40 years of age, I'm never going to sin again. <laughs> and you never did. That still would not have canceled the previous 40 years of sin. See, we had no mechanism to erase sin. That's what we have in Christ. He redeemed us. He paid the price for our sin. Now again, you know, it gets a little more complicated because the point Paul is making here is that the sin was the result of the law. <laughs> right? So we have to get rid of the law to be able to get rid of the power of sin. He redeemed us so that, in order that, you see, he's a great lawyer here, in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Well, now you need to ask yourself, what is that blessing? That blessing was, and he has explained, he's going to continue to explain it, is the blessing of faith. 
that what is ultimately important to God is not honoring laws or the law, but it is simply coming in faith. That was the basis of the Abraham covenant, faith. So that might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, so that, there it is, by faith, we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit, or the, the Spirit, capitalized. Now, those two verses, and interestingly, I think if we counted up the words, might be dead center in his letter. This is the, the, the pivot of an entire argument. 13 and 14. Critical, crucial verses. What would you like to say about being redeemed, being cursed, the law, the spirit? I, I just was going to write this down. I couldn't find the word. If the law was given to point out sin, to let people know what sin was, what God wanted, and if... <coughs> In the Old Testament, then, what what was his way to salvation? If, if if the law was given and they couldn't keep it, what was the answer for them? Can can you wait till we get to verse nineteen? Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> no, you're right here to your seat. But no, that's uh, see how 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 he's explained that because it does at this point it does raise that question. I mean, we we should have asked that question a long time ago. I mean, if the law really isn't important, then it sounded really important back then. Why? Why did God give it? Yeah. So, yeah, let's let's follow okay. down through the, the the logic as as he goes down through. But yeah, that that will become abundantly clear. We're going to spend a lot of time on verse nineteen. So, okay. right. <laughs> because yeah, that that's another one of those critical critical verses. What what other thoughts do you have on faith, salvation, spirit, cursing, law? Pretty much any theological concept you want to talk about. Well, it is just pretty neat to realize that Jesus, what Jesus did for us, and and how he, he, his death didn't take away the fact that we are sinners. Right. But it it takes away our burden and our guilt of sin, so that we, even though we're sinners, we are redeemed sinners. Right. And now have the avenue of forgiveness. Exactly. To cancel sin. Yeah. So in fact, even though we sin. Boy, this would be a great sermon. Even though we sin, we're still supposed to be sinless. Because when we sin, we ask for forgiveness that is canceled. Therefore, we're now sinless. We can then we live. sin again, then we ask for forgiveness, and it's canceled. Because of his redemption, we can live in a state of sinlessness, even though we are sinners yes. and do sin. Yes. Whew. Yeah. <laughs> Let me write that down. I'm going to have you write this sermon for me, Jim. <laughs> you imagine me stumbling over that in a sermon and people looking at you like, what is he saying? No, that's, that, that, that's going to be brutal. But, wow, I, but I think that's precisely why God himself says of David, this is a man after my own heart. Because David sinned a lot, but was always after the heart of God. He's always after, and the heart of God is forgiveness, is love. He's always after me. He sins a lot, but boy, he's getting smart. The second that, what, you know, the, the sin of the, of the tongue or, 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 or his action, he realizes it. And once it's done, it's done, right? Once those words come out of your mouth, you can't take them back, but you can ask for forgiveness for it. And the promise is even if the other person doesn't forgive you, God does. 
So technically, yes, we are sinless sinners. <laughs> There's your title. <laughs> There's a theological quagmire that I really, really get you. I never really thought of it that way before, but yeah, that's an interesting concept. Um, but yes, I mean, technically, at the end of each day, we, we, we really should be sinless. You say your prayers at night. You should go down, down anything. I mean, hopefully throughout the course of the day, you have been like David and recognized when you have sinned and asked for forgiveness at the time. But at the end of the day, as you pray, so A, if you ask for forgiveness at noon for something you did, you don't have to do it again at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock when you go to bed. If you do it again, if you ask for forgiveness for something you've already asked for forgiveness for, that's another <coughs> theological sticky wicket, as the Brit Brit British would say, uh, because if you ask for it again, you're basically saying, God, I didn't trust you that you did it the first time. And that's where the guilt comes in. You see? That's yeah. the, the devil's weapon, is to keep reminding us of what we have committed back here so that we keep feeling bad about it and keep feeling a need to keep coming back and asking God for forgiveness. You ask one time, it is done. You trust that God has done it and you walk forth guilt-free. Right? So if you've done it throughout the course of the day, whatever else you, oh yeah, there at 9.30 I did that and I should have done that or whatever. Yeah. You know, the recent history or whatever, look back over your day. And then I, I think it's perfectly appropriate to just throw, throw in the little disclaimer at the end and lo, Lord, anything else that, that uh, I, I has forgotten this. Uh, <laughs> God likes it when you talk King James to him. Uh, you know, that uh, you can you know, append that and then you should be able to go to sleep and be total peace. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Right? I mean, you, you really would, would trust in that. But if you go to bed still distraught, still guilty, still uh, not knowing what to do, see how easy this is. Easiest thing you could possibly do. Just ask for forgiveness. And it is done. That's easy, easy, but it's... Oh, sorry. It's very easy, but it's very demanding. It is. It's disciplined. Yeah, if you don't keep your slate clean, you're the one in trouble. That's right. All you have to do is truly be sorry and ask. And it's done. Mm -hmm. But you better make sure you've asked. And you can't blame that on me. <laughs> See, that's, that, that's good. But yeah, personal responsibility in this is incredibly important. And unfortunately, that's not really high on the uh, priority list for most Americans. We like to blame other people for our problems and uh, yeah, just take personal responsibility for that. So you can't save yourself, but only you can save yourself. <laughs> There's another sermon title for you. <laughs> right? You see what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. I mean, so I can, I, I, I can pray for you until the cows come home, but ultimately it is your personal decision to be with Jesus. I can't pray you into heaven. You, you have to take personal responsibility for that. Yeah. What were you going to say? Well, this is just such a battle because we are made... To feel, I almost think sometimes we like to feel guilty. We feel like we have to yeah. feel guilty. Yeah. And this is the one thing that God gives us that that is really hard to get a hold of. That we can live in that free, that freedom and peace. That's what it means. That means not having that knot in your stomach anymore. No. It doesn't mean don't be concerned. It doesn't mean think don't think about it. 
but it, 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 it's saying don't let it affect your life. Don't let it be a negative force in your life. You can give this to God and then it's released. I don't know if you've heard me say it before. It's, it's sort of like taking all your burdens, it, put them in a plastic bag, row out to the middle of the lake, dump <coughs> it over, and it sinks to the ground, sinks to the bottom. You go back to shore. Tomorrow, you take your fishing rod, you go out to the middle of the lake, you yep. lower it down, you bring it back up again, yep. and then you wear it some more. The, the great, one of the greatest things he gives to us is that release, that peace to live in that. And that, if we don't do that, it can really screw us up. I, I love the biblical image at that point, that God removes sin from us as far as the east is from the west. Yeah. How far is that? Infinite. Infinite. Right? But you know, you have to, I always call it a partnership between God and, and me. Sure. Or God and us. Huh? It has to be a partnership. And I like to call it my spiritual awakenings, but I had one one day whenever I was feeling guilty, and all of a sudden I realized God doesn't want my brain like this. So I said, if God doesn't want it, I don't need to be doing this. Um, and that was an aha moment yeah, for me. Precisely. Because it's terribly freeing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Did Did you feel that burden just? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just but and then. I'm serious. It's like a light bulb does really go off. These little light bulbs all along. Sure. And I call them spiritual spiritual awakenings or whatever, but I can remember the day that happened and I thought, why am I doing this to me? I know God, if I really believe in a loving God, he doesn't want this in my head. Right. But I say, uh, that the guilt and the, the reminder of sin is one of the devil's greatest weapons. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I, it, it, he wants, the devil wants to make us think that final judgment is a courtroom scene where he gets the opportunity to be the the uh, the the lawyer that is bringing forth all all our sins and basically telling Jesus why would you want this person in heaven with you i mean he he's not worthy but it's not going to be that way no and it stops you from being who god made you yeah it's crippling then you're, yeah, it's crippling, right? Yep. So you, that was a big deal to me. Yeah, well, great. Do you, do you not think you can help yourself along this way with your own prayer? When you ask for forgiveness, ask God to help you forget it. Yes. Huh? You yeah. know, yep. And ask him to take it the minute it comes back into your head again. I mean, you can fight it with prayer, I think. Certainly. Is that not what we're praying in, in the Lord's Prayer? Yes. You know, keep us from evil. You know, another form of the Lord's Prayer is keep us from the evil one. You know, don't, don't let the evil one come, come into us and plant those thoughts. Yeah, that's, and so yeah, the devil is going to try to make you feel guilty. He's not going to try and turn you into a serial killer. He's going to try and get you just to feel guilty because the guilt separates mm -hmm. from God. It, it puts up that, that dividing wall and we lose sight of God, and pretty soon we're okay with that. <laughs> Just this is the way I'm supposed to be, like Jim's saying. Yeah, I, we almost think it's right to feel guilty. I feel really bad for what I did. But the freedom in the Spirit is the exact opposite of that. So we have a choice to make. You know, we either live a life burdened with guilt, 
which is very law-oriented, which Paul is certainly speaking against, uh, or we can choose the freedom of the Spirit. Now, freedom of the Spirit doesn't mean you don't care about anything, <laughs> but it means that you're much more self-aware of how you affect others, and you will take personal responsibility for that. Yeah. And you do what you can, and but ultimately, God is the one who forgives, and you have to be willing to accept that. Yep. What else you want to say? You're on, Jim. <laughs> I said enough. I said enough. <laughs> All right, let's look at verse 15. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. Now, Paul's looking at something that we're all familiar with. What he's saying is that the law of Moses is not the most important revelation from God. It was a revelation. It may have been an important revelation, but it is not the most important. So here it is in a nutshell. What Paul is saying in verses 15 to 18 is simply this. The revelation given to Abraham was more important than the revelation given to Moses. What Abraham received was based on faith. And faith is the most important. This is just another way of saying what Paul always says. Faith not works. The works are the, the, the means of living out the faith. But we would like it to be just the works. Let me prove to God how good I am. So God is defining the rules of the covenant. So he's using a legal terminology here. So if you go through the legal process of setting up a, a, a trust in your will, saying that when I die, this, that, all my... Worldly possessions go to this person. Nobody can go in and change that legal document, right? Well, be the use of doing it. If you, you know, this is my plan, this is what I desire to do with whatever, I set that up in a legally binding document, then no one, not even a judge, can go in and change that. And that's what he's saying was the original contract, the original covenant between God and Abraham. The law didn't change the original contract. It was established by faith, not works. So, furthermore, what he's saying is that God's people, the Jews changed it. You had the relationship based on faith. You added law to it. 
But what they did over the course of time was forget about the faith, the legally binding basis of the relationship, and substituted works. It was as if they went down to the courthouse, got that legal document, erased whatever they didn't like in it, and typed in other, other qualifications. They changed the rules. So, let's bring this into 2015 Bedford, USA. What this means is that you have no relationship with God if you were living by your own terms. This is where the pastor pauses. Right? So, we have, we have a legally binding document already established by faith. You can't claim to be a Christian if what you're doing is changing that essential foundation. If you are making the Christian faith about anything other than faith. That's what Paul's saying. We know that to be true with our human dealings with each other. That's why he says an example from everyday life. You do that every day, making these legally binding contracts with each other. God has done the same with you in the contract he made with Abraham. So the way this is presented, and sorry that you don't get a vote in this, God says this is the way it will be or else. If you don't like the fact that relationship with God is based on faith in Christ our Lord, tough noogies, don't care. You can pitch a fit, you can... You can change whatever you want for yourself. But if you change it, the essence of it, God says you're on your own. So we need to understand this. This is the contract we are stuck with. We don't get to redefine it or in our modern enlightenment think that we're smarter than God and, well, this is what God really meant. Wait, what Paul is trying to do is make this abundantly clear what God really meant. So deviating from this clear plan of God, this plan of salvation set forth through Abraham, means that anyone who deviates from it receives no salvation. And that is true, Paul is saying, for even a person who with great, wonderful intentions creates a bunch of rules to supplement or substitute the essence of the faith relationship. What, what this says to me is, God does not need my help with the plan of salvation. God designed it perfectly, he shared it perfectly, and will perfectly hold us accountable to it. Using Paul's word from chapter 1. We don't have a right to pervert the essence of our relationship. God has already clearly delineated all the clauses in this legal, legal contract. Our job is simply to understand it and then do it. Would you like to say anything about that? 
very clear to me. I just want to make sure it's very clear with you. <laughs> yes. You, you mentioned faith through Jesus Christ. Now Abraham did not have right. Jesus, so it was still based on, on based God, the yeah. the the faith that was available to them at that time. So the 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 aspect of the contract that changed was not with the law, it was with Jesus. That's the, yes, that is the historically dividing time period. Yes. So and going back to verse thirteen, when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, that's where. The, the clock starts ticking again. The uh, time changes at that point, yes. Well, uh, we have... We keep faith and are obedient because we have a destination in mind. We have eternity with, with God in heaven. We know that we're redeemed because of what Jesus did for us. What was, what was the reward, quote unquote, for the people of the Old Testament for their faith? What, why, sh why should they be, why should they keep the faith? What did they have to look forward to? to yeah, what? heaven, same same as we do. That hasn't changed. So the only thing that changed is the, the qualification to get there. Where, that changes with Jesus. Where was it stated? Where where is it stated? How 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 is that stated in the Old Testament that they receive heaven? I'll have to look some passages up, but it's okay. very clear. But you know, one of the real problems is as time went on over those thousands of years, they actually they changed that as well, so that even to this day, Jews really don't believe in heaven. Right. I mean, they don't believe in the spirit. They don't believe in heaven. They, they, I mean, which are clearly defined in the Old Testament. So they, well, just you know, they focused on the law, but then they said, "Well, we really don't believe in heaven." So now the see in Jesus' day, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Remember those those two groups? Yeah. Two religious groups. Um, not quite of equal standing in the community, but almost a two political parties, if you will. And the Pharisees had the majority of the power in the day, and it's Jesus notes this. It's in one of the Gospels that the Pharisees believed in resurrection. The Sadducees, the opposing party, did not. So you can remember which one is which because the Pharisees believed in heaven. The Sadducees did not believe in heaven. Not believing in heaven makes you sad. You see? Uh, <laughs> you can write that down. Uh, but yeah, that's how I remember it. So the Sadducees didn't believe in heaven. So as time went on then after Jesus in the, the Jewish faith that actually became the predominant concept. The, sad, the concept of the Sadducees won out over the Pharisees. So basically, heaven is removed till now. That's to this day, 2,000 years later, that's what the Jews base their religion on. It, it has nothing to do with heaven. You don't go to heaven. 
when you die, you die. Yeah. And that's why for them, then they've redefined everything. So they've totally thrown everything out and are now making things up on their own. So in their minds, the best you can do is have a, a, a male child who will carry on your name. I mean, literally. That's the greatest hope they have. Big whoop. I mean, that's not any better than coming back as a cow for crying out loud. I mean, I just, come on. I mean, why would you bust a gut for a religion like that? That's, I, I just, makes no sense at all to me. So, did you find something? Well, no, I, I didn't. But find another question. What you're, <laughs> what you're saying is, is that uh, after the law was given, that, that their concept of heaven disappeared because of, of their obedience to the law as opposed yeah, to faith. Yeah, they substituted the law for faith, yes. That's what, that's what Paul's saying, yes. And he would know because he was the greatest of Pharisees. Sure. He studied the law and he knew the law inside and out. He knew the value of the law. He knew all of that. So, yes, he was just crazy about the law. Loved the law. Thought that law was the answer to everything. So he's actually the expert in talking about this because he used to believe that, couldn't he? Is this too simplistic to say? The bottom line is the abandonment of supplication from the very beginning, you know, in the garden. God created it, if, if this is what we believe, in the garden, immediate disobedience. And then as we read through the Old Testament, we rely on God and then it's no, give us rules, give us prophets, give us, give us structure. And, and the, the more we resist supplication and knowing who's in charge and what the most important thing is, the more we grasp onto yeah. all the other things in our way. And it's more problematic. Well, it's probably the same, different, but you know, in our culture, we see what we grasp onto yeah. instead of the main thing. And so, it's a question to ask God, why did he build us so we want, <laughs> we need all these things versus him? It's, it's our reluctance to be in supplication to him right. and be in the relationship with him. But part of the answer to that question is that's why we are the greatest of his creations because we have the free will because we can to make the choice. Back to the choice. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And when we make the choice well, then we hear well done, good and faithful servant, as opposed to cursed are you forever and ever and ever. Yeah. So his chosen people that Jim is talking the Jewish people are the chosen yes. ones. Um, they don't believe in heaven. No. They don't believe in having a relationship. That's what I was just going to say. Are you saying then that only God's chosen Jewish people that are completed Jews are the only ones that will go to heaven, even though they are his chosen people? What do you mean by completed? The ones that have come back to now say, yes, we believe in Jesus. We yes, accept that. Right. Yeah, the messianic, the completed Jew. Yeah, and anybody on earth who accepts Jesus is, right, is I, good to I go. I mean, I'm just talking about the chosen group, yeah. the, the Jewish. Right. But only those will be in heaven. Yes. So I, 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 I wouldn't pull the Jews out as separate from other religions. So you have you know, those who believe in Jesus, truly believe in Jesus, are faithful to Jesus, go to heaven. The Jews, Muslims, Every other group, atheist, every every other, anything other than this is in this category over here. 
So the rules are the same for all those people here. Accept Jesus and you're in. Reject Jesus, come up with any other plan. That's what Paul is saying. Any other plan that deviates, that perverts this original concept, you're out. Yeah. So the only way in is through the narrow door of faith. Arch talks a lot about a personal friend of his that is Jewish. Mm -hmm. And was brought as a very strict Jew, knew all the Old Testament, yeah. all of that. But he did finally come to Jesus mm -hmm. then and is on the way in now. Yeah. But uh, even though he was taught the scriptures, yeah. he knew the Old Testament by heart. It, it, they have to memorize it. And yet he wouldn't have been there had he yeah. died. Did, have you ever noticed the frustration Jesus has with the Pharisees who knew the law inside and out? And he looks at them and says, why don't you know this? All these Old Testament prophecies and, and statements and all that, talking about the Messiah. Can't you see that I am exactly what was predicted, including riding in on a donkey into Jerusalem? And, you know, the, I mean, just every aspect of it. You know. That's what I meant with my question. These Jewish people yeah. know it. But if they haven't accepted Jesus, it doesn't matter what they know. That's right. They probably know more than most of us yep. about the book, the Old Testament especially. Yep. Can recite it inside and out. Yep, yep. That's just blows my mind. Yep. But as you know, go back to Romans chapter 1. I mean, they substitute the truth for a lie. So throughout the course of time, they, they allow themselves to be deviant from the essence. And after you practice that for a while, it becomes second nature and... You know, sin is sin, rejecting, rejecting Jesus, um, denying the Holy Spirit, however you want to define that. I mean, that's really the basis of it. And if you do that, then you're out. Yep. Unbelievable. What other wild and crazy thoughts do you have? All right, so let's, let's make it clear. What we're talking about is an inheritance contract, much like a will, right? Like I say, yeah, I mean, you, you set up for your children. If you don't like your children, you do say you give it to somebody else, but you set up, my stuff goes here. You're very specific, very defined. There is no question as to what your desire is. I mean, people do that with your funeral arrangements and everything. They lay it all out. This is what I expect you to do. And the beauty of it is, the way those contracts are worded is, I don't care what you think. <laughs> right? I have defined what I am doing. You have no say in this. That's exactly what God did with us. It's an inheritance contract, so the writer of the contract is God. God made the covenant with Abraham. So essentially, up until Abraham, there were no followers of God. Noah would have been the closest, but it does not start with Noah. It doesn't start with Adam. It starts with Abraham. And what this is saying is that the covenant with Abraham was complete and whole. So the law doesn't make that original covenant better. 
Now, God is the author of the covenant. And only God then can choose to change the rules. So if you make up your will today, five years from now, something may change. You can go back to that lawyer and say, I want to, it's called a codicil. I want to make an amendment to my will. You as the original writer of the will have, are the only person who could go back and change whatever provision is, is offered in that. The only one. Now, God makes this inheritance contract with Abraham. I did the math. 430 years later, the law comes. That wasn't a day after. It was 430 years later, a long time afterwards. God says, now, I, want, I, I wrote the original. I now want to add a codicil to this. Another aspect of this foundation. I'm not changing the original. I'm just adding some, another element to it. But the point is, for 430 years, God did not demand that his people live under the law. I mean, that should be huge. It wasn't necessary. So the law is added. It doesn't replace the original. That's why, are you ready for this? That's why Jesus says he came to fulfill the law. Make sense now? He didn't come to replace the law. He came to fulfill it. He came to now add the last essential element of the law. Thousands of years later, time doesn't matter at that point. When Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law, what he's saying is, I came to make sure that it is abundantly clear what the original contract was. Because the law had skewed that so much, no one knew what it was anymore. Jesus fulfills it so that people can see clearly, this is what relationship with God was originally designed to be. Now, the analogy Paul uses is that the author of the covenant, whether it's a person writing a will here on earth or God writing a contract with us, that person who writes it is basically making a promise to the person benefiting from the will. This is an example from everyday life. Your will is designed to benefit certain people. God did the same with us. So the, the issue with the law that Paul is fighting about is that these Judaizers who came into these cities of Galatia, now we're trying to re-educate the people to look at the Bible through the eyes of the Pharisees, those who maintained the law, rather than through the eyes of Abraham. Huge difference, right? So that's what he's trying, trying to do with them. Now, make it even more clear. How about flip over to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16... 
Would you like to see Abraham? This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Because it stars Abraham. It's pretty cool. Luke 16, 19. A story Jesus tells. Let me, let, let me just read it for you. And let, let, let that image form in your mind. That's a really you know, well-painted picture here before us. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to dun, 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 Abraham's side. Not Moses' side, Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So first thing you need to notice is the rich man knew Lazarus. So this was a beggar who hung out at this guy's house year after year, and the rich man knew who he was. He recognized him immediately. Saw him every day when he went out, but never helped him. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. <laughs> That's a pretty good image of hell, right? But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not come also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now there's choices again, right? Some people, no matter what you do, <laughs> and that's what Abraham's saying. You know, why all the Pharisees who hated Jesus so much? When they saw him, <laughs> you know, Easter and following, why they didn't believe at that point, God only knows. They just refused to. But what this is saying is that each and every one of us has a choice to make. You're either going to live this life based on faith that is not perverted. Or you're going to choose to pervert the faith and make it something you want it to be. So what this is saying is any deviation from that original faith foundation results in you changing the contract. And if you change the contract, that's illegal because you don't have a right to do that. Therefore, you receive nothing. The penalty is you get nothing. So our choice today is are you going to choose a life that is based on faith like Abraham and enjoy the constant blessing of the Holy Spirit in your life? 
Or would you prefer to choose Moses, working under the law and being cursed by the law? You pick. <laughs> now again, I can't pick that for you. But every person on earth has to make that choice. And again, doesn't matter. There, 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 there's no splitting of hairs at this point. You either accept Jesus by faith or you don't. It's not, I, I, I accept Jesus by faith and something else. <laughs> you, don't, you don't get to change that original contract, you see. If you do one little change, you're over here in this camp. You're in the unsaved camp. So again, God, God made it abundantly clear. This is the contract. You'll either agree to the contract or you won't. But every person on earth has to do that. Faith like Abraham results in God's covenant being universally offered to everyone in the world. Remember the promise he gave to Abraham? Your descendants will be as many as the sand on the seashore, as many as the stars in the sky. So the original contract given to Abraham is a universal invitation. The law confines salvation to Israel. Does that sound like something God would do? Be that limiting? In fact, it says, it says in their Old Testament, the Jews are sent as a light to the nations. They're supposed to be taking this message out. But they literally put up walls around Israel <laughs> and closed it in, and they refused to share it with anybody. And they, anybody who said, I'd like to sign up for that, they made it so impossible that no one in their right mind would do it. It was an exclusive club. And they liked it that way. Again, changing Another element of the essence of God's original plan. <clears throat> Can I say something? You may. Else? Verse, verse 16 says, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but to, and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Uh, or, Paul states the covenant was specifically given so God's plan for Jesus' role in our salvation could be fulfilled. The law could not change that covenant. Right. Jesus was, Jesus was designated right from the beginning. Right. That's always, so the, always so been the law could not, could not change that. See, and, and the beauty of it is we didn't need to know that. For that first 430 years... They didn't need to know the law was coming, right? It's just what you know today, that's the policy you're under. And if the, the original writer wants to change that, then the person can do that whenever that person wants to. But oh until God. that point, you were bound to the, the rules of the contract as you have received it. Going back to Abraham, that's all. He, he didn't know anything but what God told him. God didn't tell him any of this. Right, but still by faith he, did, he obeyed. Right, precisely. Yep. So on that, that verse 16, now it's not multiple seeds because it would make it sound like, well, we can take Jesus and, and do some other things with it. Right? So it's singular seed. It specifies Christ. So any of us who accept Christ then are part of the singular. 
It is not singular with various shades of colors <laughs> offshooting from that. It is singular. You either do this or you're out. There's only one way. Now, Abraham certainly understood this contract was designed by God. God set it out and simply asked Abraham if he was willing to accept those terms. Abraham says yes. God is doing the exact same thing with you, with me, with everybody on earth today. So persons that are not yet believers, that's really the struggle they're experiencing. The controversy in their mind. Most people, at least here in Bedford County, that, that you'll come across that are not registered believers, they have gone into that Galatian camp. Yeah, they believe, well, I need to be a good person. I need to do good things. And as long as I'm not as bad as most people, I'm okay. You know, they, they have redefined the contract. And they're perfectly fine with that. Because we like control. <laughs> right? We, we, we like to think God needs help. So in their mind, they think, I'm okay. So part of our urgent plea with them needs to be, no, this, this is what God is saying. Now the good news is, that's not going to be as difficult a job as we think. It's, it doesn't even impinge upon our uh, ability to convince somebody. Remember, they too have the Holy Spirit in them, who is screaming at them anyway. So if they have a voice from inside saying, believe this, believe this, and they hear a voice coming in their ear, believe this, believe this, it just might work. But it is easy for people to get locked into what they want to believe. I mean, harken back to Pharaoh. I mean, how many times he get hit up alongside the head and flatly refused to do it? Some people are like that. Doesn't matter. That's between them and God. Our job is just to make sure this truth is readily apparent to everybody we know. Now, if you want to look at it from another angle, what Paul is claiming is the big mistake of the Galatians and these Judaizers is that they had come to believe that they, had, they, they were allowed to elevate Moses above Abraham. Which again goes against the clear plan of God. God is saying, I made this contract with Abraham, not with Moses. Moses was just my messenger boy that I sent with the law. That's it. He's going to talk a little bit more about Moses here shortly. So, if you want to inherit the promises of God like Abraham, then you must choose to do it the way Abraham did it. By faith alone. That was Martin Luther's entire platform. Faith alone, faith alone, faith alone. Because the church up to that time had become like the Galatians, had become works-oriented. They had made law premier again. So, we had 430 good years. A good 2,000 bad years under the law. Jesus redefines it, gets started good. Eh, we had maybe 100, 200 good years. Then we decided to get organized. Big mistake. 
form committees, right? And then we went for, eh, let's say 1,300 years back to bat again, based on the law, based on rules, based on you better do it the way I tell you to do it or else. Man-made rules and regulations. Martin Luther comes along and protests Protestants. Protest that because he finally read in the Bible, he's reading Galatians and he's saying, wait a minute, if this is what God says I'm supposed to do then, the way we've been living is not right. And came up with 95 things that were wrong in the church. Verse 18, if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. Right? The contract with Abraham was based on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. We made it, Jim. Yes, we did. Verse 19. <laughs> If the covenant established with Abraham was so good, why was it necessary to add the law? Is that not what you're asking? <laughs> right? I'm glad he answers the question because otherwise we'd be in big trouble. He asked a somewhat facetious question and then gives us the answer. So in verses 19 to 25 is basically the answer. But suffice it to say, at this point, Life in the Spirit. We have to wait until we get to Galatians 5 for that. But that basically means that we choose to live in the Spirit rather than the law. See, another choice. It can't be both. But if we're living in the Spirit, that's what Paul does in, in, in chapter 5. If we're living in the Spirit, then we will be doing automatically what the law requires and much more. Voluntarily as opposed to being obliged to do it. <clears throat> you are saved by faith, but saving faith is a faith of works. There's a lot of buts in the Christian faith. <laughs> Where did I lose you? Yeah, I, saved you, by faith. You're saved by faith. I, I know that. <laughs> But that makes it sound like which some early Christians did. I have faith in Jesus. I'm just going to sit here and wait for him to return. <laughs> right? So you're, you're saved by faith. But if you truly have faith, you're going to want to do good works. The natural response to such a, good, a goodness in your life is, I, I want to give something back. As, as I have been so loved, I want to love others. I mean, we teach our kids that, don't we? Yeah, when say thank you. Yeah, I mean, you, you respond to somebody giving you something, something good. So um, that's the policy we, we are under, that we want to do the good works. So we talked two weeks ago. So... That gets us off of the hook. It unburdens us, though, because it is, this is not a competition. Right? 
So it's not like you have to do 10 good works a day or you're not in. That's law-based, right? That's, we're, we're going back to, there's a law that says, okay, thou shalt do this many, or this, this type of quality. You know, there's extreme good, medium, and, 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 and okay types of good works. And you have to do you know, two okays and three, three pretty goods and, 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 and a couple exceptionals. Yeah, there's none of that. It's just do good. Just do it. And so it doesn't matter if, if your good works are just always so excellent and mine are barely mediocre. It doesn't matter. We're both responding to faith. But it's based on faith. Not on, I better do these good works or else. So the, the quality nor the quantity of good works are not factored in at all. Well, it's funny, you don't have to be taught that because it comes with it. If you have the faith, yeah. you don't have to be taught that what you just said. Yeah, because you have the Holy Spirit in you that's already teaching you these that's things. Right. It makes perfect it, sense at that it point. It comes with it, yeah. And, and what the beauty of that is kids get that. I mean, little kids, when you work with the kids in the gym, can't you see it in, in, in the majority of them? It, it's, a, it's a natural. It's, it's not taught. It's just innate. Mm -hmm. we, we know this from birth. We really do. I had a child a couple weeks ago. They were drawing a picture of their, their favorite thing. And he comes up and he says, what does the Holy Spirit look like? And, you know, the shepherd goes, uh. Another <laughs> <laughs> so tough theological question. <laughs> and this, we talked about it a little bit. He says, I'm just going to draw a heart. Oh, for crying out loud. Come yeah, on. Said, oh, man. Yeah, that's yeah. Our next great theologian. Yeah, <laughs> Boy, that, that, that'll, that'll catch you short, won't it? Yeah, that's, it did. That's, see, that's, yep, there it is. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That is really something. Oh, you got to love that. So when we say we're maturing in the faith, which is a very biblical principle. I mean, you have to. So I think part of what I'm saying, Sue, is you know, we, we don't get the, the luxury of maturing a little bit and then quitting. I, I've done enough. See, true faith, we know that, will not allow us to do that. But we also know it's not a competition. It's not a you know, comparative type of thing. It's just this is what God calls me to do, and this is what I'm going to do, irregardless of what anybody else on earth does. Right? That's really freeing, too. So we, we just do the good works because we want to. It's a, it's, it's a natural outcome of our faith. So that's why, again, when we get to chapter 5, these are fruits of the Holy Spirit. So we, we have the Holy Spirit in us, right? Sandy told us so. I believe everything Sandy tells me. So we have the Holy Spirit in us. The fruit is the, the product, the outcome of the Holy Spirit in us. So the only, the only thing we need to challenge ourselves with and question ourselves with is, can others see the fruit of the Holy Spirit in me? Can others see love, joy, peace, patience, 
Well, not so much patience. But, yeah, it's, you know, gentleness and kindness and, and self-control. Can people see those qualities in me? You see? That's the, the evidence. So an act that is loving, an act that instills joy in somebody or peace in someone, some act, some word that is kind and gentle to somebody, some word that you really want to take somebody's head off, but instead you exercise self-control and do a more constructive thing with? That's evidence, you see? And I think Sandy's on the right track. Those are not things that we really process. They're natural. We know we're supposed to be doing these things. Start crying out loud. You, know, you don't have to go to school to learn how to do this. You simply say, I believe in Jesus. You, you Then, boom, you have that. And you continue to focus on those nine characteristics and say that my life needs to, to model and exemplify those nine on a day-to-day basis. It's only seven days in a week, so you don't just pick one and work on you know, each day of the week. You work on all nine, all day, every day. Some of them, patience and self-control might be a little more difficult. <laughs> then say this is going to be easy. But when we talk about us being accountable and the, the, the personal responsibility, Judy, that we have, that's where it comes in. See, I, I, I can't make you be peaceful or joyful. I, I can't put a gun to your head and tell you to be those things. But it's readily offered to you in the freedom of the Spirit. If you will choose to accept that. That might answer our earlier conversation question. Yeah. 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 When you just say, okay, I'm going to do this regardless of what's happening over there. And that, that's really the def- you know, joy and peace then are both defined in scripture as you know, non-dependent on outside circumstances, you see. So you can't even blame it on, you know, I'm in a bad mood because. That's not an excuse Christians get to use anymore. Because we're supposed to be joyful and peaceful. And that is irregardless of outside circumstances. What fun. So basically, God has done 99% of this for us. I mean, it's not that hard at all. The only hard part is us getting past ourselves and our own strong wills and thinking that we can, we can help God in this process. He's clearly defined it. Just shut up and accept it. There's your next sermon title. <laughs> What fun this is. Now still, look at verse verse 19. If in fact we're saved by faith, then what was the purpose of the law? Abraham's covenant was adequate. Why was it necessary to add to it? Well, what Paul explains in these next verses is, the bottom line is that the law could never do what these Judaizers thought the law could do. And they're claim, these Judaizers are claiming what the law could do was never what God intended anyway. So basically, when you add the human element to it, you take it away from God, and you make it human. You totally change the contract. Now, Paul's in a tough place here. If Paul comes across and says that the law has to, to answer your question, I mean, 
if Paul comes out and says the law was of no value whatsoever, first of all, he would be saying, God made a mistake. You don't want to do that. And secondly, he would totally alienate the Judaizers. People don't respond real well when you look at them and say your entire life is wrong. <laughs> it just, it's not a good strategy in, in, in you know, yeah, encouraging change in somebody. Right? So he, he's really stuck. He has to be very, very careful what he says. So this verse 19 and how following, how he answers that question, because he knows that's their question. I mean, any reasonable person would come to that conclusion. Why then was the law necessary? Why was it added? So how Paul answers this question will make the difference in the ability of these Galatians to come back to the true faith. If Paul answers the question wrong, the Judaizers win and the Galatians will convert to being Jews. They will become fully Jews. Now the ultimate question that we need to discover is how the law relates to us today. I mean, we still talk about the law. So the first step in answering the question is to ask ourselves. Here's how you know whether you are a law person or a faith person. Very simple test. When I have a moral issue that I need to come to some conclusion on, do I first go to the law or do I go to Jesus? I stayed up all night thinking of that one. Whatever your, your first source is, whatever your, your first line of defense is, whatever your first, you know, we're all good, good, good arguers, debaters. You know, what's the first source that you want to go to for winning your argument? That defines what camp you're in. If you're going to say, I go to the law first, then... You're with the Galatians. You're with the Judaizers. You're with those who are, according to Paul's definition, are out. So Paul answers the question by stating that the law was added. Make sure I focus on that. It, it was added. It didn't substitute the original covenant. It added to the original covenant. It was added to, look there carefully, Jim, because of transgressions. Yeah. Okay? Now, some time ago, we had it, the word transgression came up. You don't see it very often in Scripture, but it comes up occasionally. And we use that. But the definition of transgression is an extreme sin. The whole ball of wax that's sin, a transgression is an extreme, or uh, what the Catholic Church would define as a mortal sin. They define seven, seven, eight sins that are so, so all-encompassing of life that to commit any of them virtually instantly results in you being separated from God. Like murder. <laughs> I mean, you take somebody's life. I mean, that's pretty severe, right? So uh, those, the, those kind of things. So a transgression is like that. <coughs> It's the worst kind of sin. Because a transgression is 
a willful, deliberate sin. So it's so bad in the sense of, I know this is wrong, but I choose to do it nonetheless. There's no ignorance factor here. That's what a transgression is. So, here's your big theological question of the day. It says, God added the law because of transgression. Take it to the next step now. Did God add the law because the people were sinning? Remember, he waited 430 years. Did God add it because they were sinning? Or did God suddenly learn that they were sinning because God gave the law? Say that again. <laughs> did God add the law because the people were sinning? Was, it, was, it, was the law added as a response to their sin? Or does God use the law to reveal sin? To make the sin clear? To put the parameters on what is acceptable behavior and what is not acceptable behavior? I would say number two. You're liking number two? Good choice. Right? God used the law because the people were sinning and didn't know it. You look at that 430 year period and without something written down, without some code that is universally established, the people were kind of lost. They, it, it actually forced them to make, make things up on their own. So God gave a very definitive boundary of saying Play in this area here only. So stepping out of that is a transgression because you know what the rules are. So, unfortunately, not knowing what the law was created a lot of creative sin. <laughs> Giving the law also established a lot of creative sin. <laughs> the result was the same. Because that's what the Jews did. They changed the rules of heaven. They changed the rules of how to live. They changed the rules of uh, uh, our evangelistic efforts in being the light of the world. We, changed, we chose to change all of it. They got really creative. The result was still the same. Uh, an example of that is the golden calf. As the law is literally being given, <laughs> you know, the last... The last um, ignorant sin was the golden calf. Now when you read that, it's pretty clear they knew they shouldn't do that. <laughs> right? So it wasn't like they needed the law, but then again they did. God was covering all his bases just to make sure that you know that this is sin. Up to this point, it's been, you, you, you've been a little fuzzy on that. I want to be abundantly clear to make sure that you know all the provisions of what is sin and what is not. Now go and do what you're going to do. Now look, look at the last part of verse 19. And this is the most important part of the entire conversation. We'll pick this up again next week and continue on with it. The law was given until, until, until the K 
capital S seed had come. Ta -da! Oh, he does such a good job of this. <laughs> right? The law was given until Jesus came. That was the codicil. For a couple thousand years, live under the law. But when Jesus comes to fulfill the law, the, the power of the law is no longer valid. So that codicil is then removed. We remove the addendum. Now here's the big question. You better get this right. If we're removing the codicil, we added the law, we're now removing it. What do we have left? The original. Which is? Faith. The F word. <laughs> we have faith, you see? We added one thing, but then until, see that was the contract, until Jesus comes, then I'm going to remove it. And we're back to where we started. Faith, 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 faith. Just faith. We still have the Ten Commandments, though. We do, but now living with faith, the resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, with that in our lives, we don't need to be concerned with the individual clauses of that because now we are living with love, joy, peace, and all those things which then will result in us not doing those anymore. We will honor the Sabbath. We're not going to murder people. We're not going to lie. And if you had a, a, a male or female manservant or maidservant, I would not covet them. I'm still looking for somebody. I want to be in that situation and see if I would, I would covet a manservant or a maidservant. But. So do, do that for me. Get a... Get get a get a, a a maid for a while and see put me put me to the test and see see see, see if I cover. So you understand what I'm saying now? Yes. So again, naturally. So we don't have to be worried about or concerned with those individual clauses. We're going to do them anyway. Now the food laws. I mean, how much time do we spend on that in Romans? Right now, that aspect of the law that's gone because it's just silly. It divides people and sets up all kinds of walls and separations and everything. Stop fighting over food. Food is delicious. Just eat it. Right. But yes, in Christ we we're, we don't because we're free in the spirit doesn't mean we're allowed to murder people or lie to people, or any of those other things. We're not allowed to take the Lord's name in vain. We're not allowed to disregard the Sabbath. We're, yeah. But again, naturally, we're going to want to do that. Naturally, you're going to want to go to church. Naturally, you're going to want to love people. So if you're not murdering them, you're going to want to love them. You're going to want to establish peace in their life. You're going to establish joy. You know, that's, so it's, it's a general principle now that we no longer have to make ourselves nuts with all these individual laws. That's basically the question the Pharisees asked Jesus. Well, we have all these laws. Tell me what's important. Love God, love your neighbor. The end. I mean, literally. That's it. So there's one, one umbrella principle based on faith. We are people of faith. Then if you can think of it, of two, two branches coming down that branch off in a billion different other directions, love God, love neighbor, and everything else falls under that. That's it. So if you're into flow charts, that's what your flow chart would look like. So literally everything, everything 
you ask, well, what about this? What about that? Everything goes under love God, love neighbor. Everything. So there, there, what I'm saying is we don't need to, to ponder those any longer. We, we, you know, we don't have to debate and, and come into controversy on should I be doing this? If it fits under love God, love neighbor, you stick it on the list and you do it. Because we claim faith in Christ. I like simple. That's pretty simple. And it works. Because that's the basic, clear design of God. And we'll pick it up there next week. Because we're having so much fun. Did your head hurt, Jim? Yeah. <laughs> Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.